This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. I wanted to take a moment to offer our special thanks to the following folks who joined us as founding member backers when we opened up crowdfunding support for the podcast. These amazing partners are such an important part of the For the Wild family. The continued support of organizations and individuals like these keeps our podcast alive. And we are so grateful to the folks at Mission Blue Gardens, Landscape, and Garden Tenders in Oakland, Berkeley, and the East Bay, Honey Bee Hub, Bee Guardians Maintaining Hives in San Clemente, Laguna Beach, and Silverado, Medicine Mandala, Plant medicine teachers facilitating intimacy with plants as a pathway to responsible, creative, and liberated embodiment. And the School of Evolutionary Herbalism, who offers in-depth online programs and live workshops on a broad spectrum of herbal traditions with a unique twist. And lastly, Organic Unity, alchemical herbal extracts for vibrant health and conscious evolution. We are equally grateful to Robbie Reeves and Janine Ban for their individual founding member support. So thank you so much to all of you. Your support really means the world to us, and we couldn't do it without you. So stay tuned for updates on how you can support the podcast. We'll have some news on that front to share with you coming soon. All right, now on to the show. It's clear that given the threats that the world is facing at the moment, nothing short of a miracle will save us. But it's also clear that the path that we've traveled with so far is littered with miracles. It's just miracles every step of the way. So that's no guarantee that the miracle that we need, which I propose that miracle is uh, a profound and very, very fast change in consciousness so that the thrall of anthropocentrism slips away and we are permitted to define our ecological identity. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with John Seed. John is the founder and director of the Rainforest Information Center in Australia, which has engaged in the protection of rainforests worldwide. Since 1979, he has been involved in direct actions which have resulted in the protection of the Australian rainforests. He has since created numerous projects protecting rainforests throughout South America, Asia, and the Pacific. In addition, he is an accomplished songwriter, filmmaker, and author, writing and lecturing extensively on deep ecology, and conducting re-earthing workshops for the past 25 years. John co-authored Thinking Like a Mountain, Towards a Council of All Beings with Joanna Macy, 
Pat Fleming, and Arnie Nass. His most recent project with the Rainforest Information Center focuses on the protection of Ecuador's rainforest in the Los Cedros Biological Reserve. Well, John, it is such a joy to be able to share this conversation with somebody who has spent their life feeling the earth, respecting the forest's intelligence, and listening to and being called into action by the despair and pain our earth bodies are experiencing. So thank you for your dedication and wisdom in this time of great unraveling and just transformation. Thanks for inviting me, Ayana, and uh, thanks for the podcast. Mm. Yes, absolutely. It's my honor. So back in 1979, when you first began taking direct action in defense of the rainforest in Australia, you heard the trees screaming for help. You wrote, quote, If I went to see a psychiatrist and said that I heard the earth screaming, wouldn't my experience be reduced to purely personal pathology? Question mark. It would show that there was something wrong with me, end quote. But of course, we know that these screams so many of us are hearing are extensions of ourselves, calling to be saved, calling us into action. Do you believe dominant culture has made any meaningful steps in acknowledging the environmental crisis, or are we still trapped in our understanding of pain a symptom of a personal pathology? I think both. I mean, I think that there have been some meaningful steps, but clearly nothing like enough, not not within an order of magnitude of enough. And the reason for that is, um, as you say, that uh, we don't recognise that our feelings calling us to the protection of this, our larger body. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, my uh, teacher, Joanna Macy, first um, made it clear to me, I guess it's more than 30 years ago now, that uh, we live in a culture where there is a uh, profound denial of many of our feelings that we are taught from a very early age to suppress our grief and uh, rage and terror. Among the many consequences of this is the fact that uh, a huge part of our intelligence is suppressed at the same time. I guess one thing that you could say about everyone who's uh, listening to this program is that each and every one of us can say without a shadow of a doubt that over the last four billion years or so, every single one of our ancestors was intelligent enough to reach the age of being able to reproduce itself before it was consumed. So that's an unbelievable pedigree of success and of intelligence. And in every generation that's selected for that intelligence, that any mammal that runs towards something wagging its tail when it should be running away as fast as it can doesn't leave its genes in the gene pool. So 99.999999% of that intelligence took place before we developed this bulge above our nose that allows us to think our way through the world. So we've imagined now that uh, intelligence only talks about our thinking, but that thinking intelligence is the tiniest fragment of our larger intelligence, and that larger intelligence is what we call feelings. That's how animals make the right decision, is that they feel their way into it. We can call it instinct, we can call it intuition, it doesn't matter what you call it. What we call feelings in ourselves 
is what remains of that ancient intelligence that has stood the test of time. So our thinking intelligence, uh, I'm not dissing that. Uh, yes, it's very beautiful and a definite uh, step forward. However, unless it is supported by feelings, it's sterile. It doesn't lead anywhere. When we say, I was moved to participate in something, I was moved to stop that from happening. When we say that I was moved to do something, we're not talking about thoughts. We can think anything and it makes no difference. Unless we feel some passion, we're not going to get involved. We're not going to do anything about it. And so it's kind of means that 35 years ago when I became involved in the environmental movement, I thought that uh, our job was to raise awareness, that um, once everyone was aware of what was going on, everything had changed. But um, wrong. Now everybody does know what's going on, very little has changed and I propose that the reason for that is that we don't feel what's going on, we only know what's going on and knowing what's going on leaves us feeling helpless, hopeless, what can one person do anyway, it's probably too late and so on and so on. I feel that uh, Joanna's work um, uh, and that, especially that part of her work that she calls honouring our pain for the world is central to us being able to move forward. We understand the directions that we need to go, but we seem to be incapable of, of getting there. And it's the absence of passion. It's the absence of rage. It's the absence of terror. And it's the absence of uh, overwhelming grief for what's happening to our world that um, stands in the way. Mm. I really agree with you that awareness and information and statistics aren't enough. They're not working. If they were working, we would have dealt with climate change and deforestation and resource extraction and pollution 50, 60 years ago. We've had the information for a really long time, but I think that we're able to compartmentalize it and also we're not only compartmentalize it, but we you know, a lot of times these intense resource extraction projects are put in somebody else's backyard. So we aren't feeling it because we aren't looking at it every day. Even with a lot of logging projects, they'll leave a buffer zone on the road and they'll clear cut just a couple hundred feet in where people can't actually see it. They're not feeling it, especially people who are in suburbs or cities who they're not face-to-face -face with the collapse of salmon or face-to-face -face with the melting glaciers if they're not seeing them. And, you know, even myself, when I read about things happening in Louisiana with the Bayou Bridge Pipeline, for instance, it's hard to always feel when we're not in direct connection. But of course, there's strategy behind that. And I really appreciate you bringing that up. I wanted to talk about this blockade at Terrania Creek that you were a part of back in 1979, which set precedent for taking direct action to protect rainforests across the world. It turns out that, and maybe I'm mispronouncing this, but the Terrania rainforest is part of the original flora of Australia. In fact, it was a part of the supercontinent called, and I might mispronounce this one too, but Gondwanaland, which existed over 320 million years ago. So I'm wondering, how did that understanding impact your acknowledgement of time and evolution and your own ecological identity? In 1979, when I arrived there, I had no understanding of uh, what was happening to the rainforest. I didn't know what a rainforest was. I was a meditator 
I'd helped to build a meditation center and a meditation community. And uh, I showed up to the blockade because um, some neighbors had appealed for help and we were into working with the neighbors. Something happened to me there. As you say, I heard the trees screaming and it turned my life around. And in trying to understand how could it be that I would hear the trees screaming, I was struggling with the idea that it might be some kind of a mental problem that I was suffering from and so on. And it gradually dawned on me that I, as a mammal, had uh, evolved within forests like these over hundreds of millions of years before Perhaps four million years ago, my ancestors uh, moved out onto the savannah to seek their fortune. Then it became less surprising that I would hear the trees screaming and more surprising that so few people seemed to hear it. And so, you know, one of the things that rainforest conservation and steeping oneself in rainforests physically, one of the things that it brings is a a deepening of one's sense of time that, uh, you know, we grow up thinking that our lives begin when we're born and somehow our ecological identity, which says that actually every cell in my body is descended in an unbroken chain from the first cell of life on earth and that there's all of this evidence in my body, uh, the vestigial tail and gills that I had while I was an embryo in my mother's womb and so on and so on, that there's all of this evidence that the story of evolution is actually my personal story and this is what happened to me, that I didn't begin 72 years ago when I was born. I began long, long time before that and why wouldn't the memory of that past be accessible to me if I didn't have a kind of intellectual walls built up that prevented me from, um, you know, becoming aware of it. And so the more that I opened myself to those kinds of ideas, the more my sense of who I am began to grow older and older. And as I became more familiar with my ancestry, I realised that my sense of myself was growing into the future as well and and I I felt uh, more and more loyalty I suppose to what was going to happen a long long time after I died. Just the way in which you're thinking about how our lives didn't begin when we were born out of our mother's womb but we were in a sense born with the earth and have that entire evolution is within us and Oh my goodness, that's a real <laughs> that's a real thought to chew on. I'm going to have to take that with me this evening and and think about that a lot more. But I'd really like to transition our conversation to the work of the Rainforest Information Center. Particularly Ecuador is known and lauded as being the first country in the world to establish the rights of nature in their constitution. But this tremendous, really exciting legal success is starkly contrasted by the reality that Ecuador is currently facing. In 2008, Ecuador defaulted on a $3.2 billion national debt, causing the country to be cut off from traditional lending sources. And then in response, the government borrowed $15 billion from China, which was to be paid back in the form of oil and mineral exports through 2024. But in the last year, the Ecuadorian government granted over 4 million acres of indigenous territories and forest reserves to transnational corporations without any free, prior, and informed consent. 
So can you share with us what the Rainforest Information Center's most recent campaign, Ecuador Endangered, is seeking to accomplish? Yes, we're we're seeking to accomplish um, in particular to overturn the government's recent decisions that have handed over these millions of hectares of what has up until now been protected rainforests and cloud forests throughout the country and uh, indigenous reserves that were also protected to hand them out as mining leases to uh, corporations from Australia and Canada and Chile and you name it, China, of course. As part of that, we'd like to revitalise that spirit within Ecuador that led to uh, Ecuador becoming the first country to enshrine the rights of nature in its constitution. And and that undertone is still there, of course, in the country, but it's been swamped by severe financial uh, concerns and uh, changes of government and uh, corruption, of course. The last vice president went to jail uh, late last year for forget seven years or something for corruption. His department was the one that was responsible for handing out these mining leases and so on and so on. I mean, our work has largely been to raise money for the for civil society in Ecuador where there are really good people who are, are struggling against this and to try to uh, uh, help them to raise the conversation in Ecuador as to what is development and is this really the way that we need to go to tear the country up in this kind of way. As Australian mining companies have been handed more of these concessions than the companies from any other country in the world, it gives us the opportunity to uh, attack these companies back at home. And a few months ago, I was outside the uh, headquarters of BHP, Broken Hill Proprietary Limited, the largest mining company in the world in Melbourne. We, you know, locked down and shut that building down for a day and trying to raise awareness within Australia about the uh, behaviour of our companies uh, overseas. Thank you so much for doing that. Just to think that Indigenous peoples of Ecuador have spent decades fighting extractive industry. In response, the Ecuadorian government has persecuted over 200 Indigenous activists under anti-terrorism laws. This, of course, doesn't even begin to account for the countless activists who have been targeted, brutalized, and murdered by police forces. So I have this train of thought, you know, what are the dynamics of international organizations and activists standing with Indigenous activists and on behalf of the rainforest? And how do you navigate these instances where international actors are privileged and that their lives are not in direct threat from the opposition? Is this degree of separation one reason why it's so imperative for the global community to get involved in these issues? And then at the same time, how does an organization like Rainforest Information Center maintain clear and open communication about the needs of communities who are experiencing violent retributions firsthand? Well, um, uh, there's no easy answer to questions like that. We, I guess the answer is we do what we can. Our hope is that if we can create the sense and hopefully the reality that the world is watching, that the danger to Indigenous activists will be less. And however, uh, given the number of uh, activists um, being murdered on a regular basis in Ecuador and uh, many other countries in South America and many other countries in the global south, 
there's no way to feel like we've been very successful in that. And I guess one of the one of the things that I would uh, add is that we try to be very careful not to sort of goad people in countries like Ecuador into doing anything. We try not to take the lead. We try not to make suggestions about do this or do that, but rather to hang back in a support capacity where they're the ones who are, are going to be facing the dangers and they're the ones who understand what's going on on the ground and we wait for them to take a position, to take a stand, to make a move and then we see how we can support them in that rather than, you know, there, there's always the the danger of some kind of eco-imperialism and the groups uh, and the Indigenous people in Ecuador are, are very aware of that and so we just uh, try and be very aware of it ourselves and understand that we are best positioned uh, entirely to support. So basically what we're doing in Ecuador is fundraising, accepting tax-deductible donations uh, in Australia and also through our partners, uh, the Earthways Foundation in the United States, and sending that money to the civil society in Ecuador to do whatever they want to do in order to move this situation forward, in order to protect the rainforests and the indigenous people. And in Australia, where um, we're taking actions that people perhaps can't safely take in Ecuador and we're harassing the mining companies at home. So later this month, there's a big mining conference that's being supported by the Australian government's kind of, you know, support for the mining industry. And uh, uh, we're definitely going to be wreaking havoc down there. Mm. I'm so happy to hear that. And yeah, it's such a very devastating and tender situation when activists are threatened, their lives threatened, their children's lives threatened. And it's really not something that we face in the same way at all here in the United States. And I feel extremely grateful that to be an activist here, although there are some dangers, it's nothing compared to our fellow activists in other countries. So I appreciate your your work trying to support them to keep in the Ecuadorian conversation, last June, an Ecuadorian court suspended the mining activities of a Chinese corporation in the Caja Nature Reserve, citing that the corporation had failed to consult the communities as required by the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and Ecuador's Constitution. This is the first time in the country's history a court has ever shut down a mine. And in January of 2018, Ecuador's mining minister resigned following the demands of indigenous and environmental activists that he stepped down. So who do you think will prevail in Ecuador? And do you see Ecuador being able to follow the footsteps of, say, Costa Rica, who banned open pit mining in 2010? Well, that's certainly our hope. And that's, um, you know, our proposal to Ecuador is that this can be done, that Costa Rica has uh, better economic indicators than Ecuador in spite or perhaps because of having shut down open pit mining because of course all of the mining profits end up in other countries they don't end up in uh, uh, you know Ecuador or Costa Rica so we're presenting this argument and giving this, our support to the civil society in Ecuador to try and spread this understanding but as to who will prevail of course uh, it's very early and hard to say. What we can say is that there's a, a lot of interest in, in Ecuador as there is abroad in 
the rights of nature, that uh, more and more countries are coming to see that just as human rights as a concept didn't even exist 100 years ago, and now it now it's taken the form of international law and more and more countries are part of human rights conventions and so on, that uh, we have to move the rights of nature forward because, of course, there can be no human rights without an intact nature for humans to be part of. One interesting development in this question is that a previous minister in the last Ecuadorian government, economist Alberto Acosta, has now written a scathing article which we've uh, had translated into English and which we're trying to uh, spread far and wide, where he criticises the economic paradigm behind mining and he points out why it's not going to deliver the goods that the mining industry and their uh, running dogs suggest. That, you know, that of course, the mining industry says we'll all be rich, and it's not true. Only they may be rich, but uh, everyone else is going to be not only just as poor as they were before, but all of their other options will have been destroyed, the options for a kind of uh, benign tourism and uh, to these forests, to use these forests as a veritable pharmacopoeia of the drugs, the industrial products and all of the other you know, incredible bounty that lies still buried within the vast gene pool that uh, will be destroyed if industrial activities destroy these forests. I was doing what I was thinking, reason with the light and the meaning that sways her radical ways that favor the many rooms she roams. There is where you find no answer and questions to remember, but no door has Rain or shine, it doesn't matter We are clear as the water that chooses to release To release from the chambers up above We are people, we are falling out of nowhere Can't deny it And the stars rise and shine out of the same stone and fire We are people, we are falling out of nowhere Can't deny it And the stars rise and shine out of the same stone and fire It's just insanity. And to even think that, I mean, luckily this this other mining operation that we were just speaking of was shut down, but the fact that there was mining activity in a nature reserve. And I just spent the last few months traveling up through the Pacific Northwest, through Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, and Alaska, and to be going into these national parks and these protected areas just to find out that there was active gold mining polluting these areas that we think are protected. It's insanity. It's insanity that we're going into the last remaining intact places on earth and not just extracting. It's not just the extraction. It's all of the pollution that comes along with it. And and it's just crazy because in so many ways, I know most of us think, oh, it's a national forest. It's a national park. It's, it's protected. And really, you just peel a couple layers of that onion and you realize, no, not at all. It's, it's not protected. I just think, you know, the Ecuadorian government's willingness to hand off 14% of the country's subsurface so that oil executives and government officials and middlemen 
can continue to get richer while indigenous communities are sentenced to a million deaths. Waterways are contaminated. Mass deforestation is set to occur. And we risk losing one of the world's most biodiverse hotspots and headwater ecosystems. It's just a clear example that we are plagued by a psychological disease that enables and and encourages us to habitually set fire to the house we all live in. So in your opinion, you know, what is the root of this psychological problem? It behooves us to spend some of our time turning away from the, you know, fighting one fire after another and to asking questions like that. In about the mid-1980s, when we'd had a lot of success in Australia uh, at Terrania Creek in 1979, no one had heard of rainforests. We didn't know that there were rainforests in Australia. It wasn't called rainforest. It was called the bastard scrub, and it wasn't considered to be romantic. It was considered to be thorny and full of vines and leeches, and it was dank and dismal, and it was the campaigns to protect these rainforests and to spread the understanding that they are the womb of life, home to more than half the species of plants and animals in the world that lend to rainforests becoming this much more romantic kind of a view. In New South Wales, after two years of uh, arrests and campaigning, an opinion poll found that over 70% of the people of our state wanted an end to rainforest logging and the government legislated with a huge series of national parks, including Terrania Creek. And from there, we went to Tasmania. New South Wales' rainforests are subtropical rainforests. Tasmania has temperate rainforests, and we did a huge campaign there. More than 3,000 people came from all over the country to this remote wilderness to blockade a dam that was being built. Uh, More than 1,500 people were arrested at that action, and we stopped that dam. The following year, we went up to uh, far north Queensland to protect the tropical rainforests and once again, national parks and eventual World Heritage listing rewarded us. However, during that time, basically the first half of the 1980s, for every forest that was being saved worldwide, a thousand forests had disappeared and it became clear to us that there was no way to save the planet one forest at a time. Of course, these kinds of uh, actions, blockades and and so on are really important and incredibly satisfying for the participants, but for the future of the world, they'd be of no significance at all unless we could find a way to address this, uh, what you rightly call psychological or spiritual disease that allows us to imagine that we can somehow profit from the destruction of our own life support systems. Paul Ehrlich said, we are sawing off the branch that we're sitting on. doesn't matter how much the timber in that branch is worth, clearly a foolish move. And that is what we're doing. So how can this be? How can Homo sapiens, you know, the intelligent ape, how can it be so stupid as to be doing something like this? Clearly we have the technology to flourish without sawing off the branch that we're sitting on. Why aren't we doing it? And the more I thought about this in the mid-'80s, the more urgent the quest became. So it was with a huge sense of relief in about 1985 or 86 that I came upon a philosophy of nature called deep ecology. And for the first time, I felt that my questions were being answered in a plausible way. So the the term deep ecology was coined by 
the late Arnie Ness, um, professor of philosophy at Oslo University, and himself a, an environmental activist and direct actions blockades. Uh, he chained himself to the side of a fjord to stop it from being damned and so on. And according to him, underlying all of the symptoms of the environmental crisis, we find the illusion of separation between human beings and the rest of the natural world, the illusion of separation. So this might sound a little bit mystical perhaps, but all you have to do to understand how down to earth what he meant is hold your breath for five minutes while you think about it. In other words, it's not something particularly mystical. It's very, very practical. It's very biological. We can't exist for even five minutes without inviting the environment inside ourselves. In fact, we are constantly cycling the environment with every bite of food, with every drop of water, with every breath of air. There is no out there for our pollution to go. It's all in here. It's all, we are inside this vast cycle and there's a failure of identification and we fail to understand that there is no separation. There cannot possibly be any separation. We are inextricably embedded in this living world and we have no independent existence. So intellectually, nowadays, this is not much of a stretch, but Aniness pointed out that the anthropocentrism or human-centeredness that underlies this illusion of separation, anthropocentrism, the idea that human beings are the centre of everything. We are the crown of creation. We are the measure of all being. The world was created by God as a kind of a moral testing ground for one species, us, and everything else is just scenery, is, is just bit players on the scene. Humans are to subdue and dominate nature, and nature is to be in fear and trembling of us. This has been around for so long, at least back to the Old Testament, that every institution of our society has been corrupted by the anthropocentrism that gives rise to this illusion of separation and makes us feel like outsiders in this world and gives us the sense that allows the destruction of our own life support systems to uh, continue without us making really positive and useful steps to, to bring it to an end. Thank you for explaining deep ecology in that way. It's a term that I've thought about a lot in the building of Unlearn and Rewild and For the Wild, and I really appreciated hearing that. I want to talk about the Council of All Beings, which is described as a series of re-earthing rituals created by you and Joanna Macy. The rituals were created to encourage participants to think beyond their human selves, deepen their awareness, and revive their commitment to defend the living earth. Typically, this begins by participants choosing a more-than-human being, species, or habitat, and developing a message about what that entity is currently facing. So after 25 years of facilitating these and other deep ecology workshops, can you share with us some of the most common messages that are released when people come together in this time of ecological crisis? Okay, yeah, well, I'll, I'll be doing a Council of All Beings again in 48 hours. I, I do this a lot. I, I did the other uh, deep ecology experiential exercises last weekend. I do this as much as I can because they were created by Joanna Macy and myself back in uh, 19, starting in 1986. 
And Joanna's main work at that time when I met her, she called it despair and empowerment, and now she calls it honouring our pain for the world. And so before we go into the kind of experiential DV ecology, such as the Council of All Beings, we always first have a circle, a despair circle, where the participants are encouraged and given a safe container for us to safely express our deepest feelings of anguish and rage and terror about what's happening to our world and what we see going on. And the kind of things that you can never say in polite company, it it brings everybody else down. There's a taboo against that kind of uh, expression. You never hear it said. And so uh, these circles are always uh, stunning in you finally, you know, have this sense that you're hearing, you know, what's been at the bottom of your own heart for so long and never gets a chance, is never invited to express itself. And only after that, do we allow ourselves to go into other processes like the Council of All Beings? And so in the Council of All Beings, each participant finds an ally in the non-human world. And when I say finds an ally, the best way to do that is to be found by the ally. So if we have enough time and if we're in the right place, we go out into nature alone, calling out to the world, hey, I'm going to be in the Council of All Beings in an hour, and I'm available to speak for you. Is there anyone out there has anything to say who would like to have a voice in the Council of All Beings because I'm available and unoccupied at the moment? And we wait and see what comes to us. And, uh, of course, if nothing comes to you, then at the end of the hour you can just choose your ally. That's fine too. But often in a later sharing we discover that for some people that process of experiencing oneself being approached by some other energy than what we normally think of as being ourselves uh, and being, you know, invited to represent that being in the Council of All Beings is the uh, most important piece for those people. Anyway, eventually we all get back together again. We create rough kind of masks. We'll just use a paper plate and cut out a couple of eye holes and, um, you know, we'll have some crayons and some string We'll all walk through a ceremonial kind of gate to enter the Council of All Beings, and then conversation begins. Like, well, we go around once and introduce ourselves. I am Tiger. I am Microrisey. I am the Milky Way Galaxy. Basically, everyone is invited to the Council of All Beings except humans. That's the way I do it anyway. I think Jonah Macy still invites humans to the Council of All Beings because obviously humans are part of the Council. In fact, that's the, that's the whole reason for doing this work is for humans to understand that they are a playing member of the Council of All Beings. But I've just had bad experience with human beings in the Council. They, they take up all the space. And so we hear lots from humans. Here's a chance for everyone else to be heard. And so we gather in uh, Council and... There's no facilitation at that point. It's just a conversation takes place and we always hear things that we've never heard before. It's a very moving kind of experience, the Council of All Beings. And uh, it's it's not that we end up believing that that actually was the uh, spirit of um, uh, Iguana that spoke, you know, but uh, somehow by putting aside our human identity and inviting some other identity to speak through us, it unleashes a kind of a creativity that 
as I say, there are always profound conversations between these different creatures and different places and so on that make us very, very thoughtful afterwards. So that's the Council of All Beings itself. Joanna now calls this work the work that reconnects. So she doesn't use the term deep ecology that much because there was a lot of uh, controversy some decades ago where fights between deep ecology and ecofeminism and this, that, and the other thing. And she just, uh, anyway, she calls it the work that reconnects. And the cycle of that work is it starts from gratitude. We start by rooting ourselves in remembering how grateful we are just to be here and to have this incredible opportunity to be alive and to meet with each other like this. It then moves into honouring our pain for the world and then moves into what Jonah calls seeing with new eyes. And the Council of All Beings is one of the processes that allows us to see with new eyes. And then finally uh, we go into going forth, which is uh, there is always an experience of a deepening of our ecological identity and also an experience of incredible connection with the other people that we've shared this with. So going forth is like how do we take our new vision and understanding out into back into our lives with us and then finally we end up with gratitude again. Yes, I've I've been able to do that with Joanna at a retreat and it was really meaningful to hear the group's response to this. And you'd mentioned Arnie Nass, who coined the term deep ecology. And he once said, quote, responsibility or duty is treacherous basis for conservation, end quote. And so much of the work that environmental advocates take part in is both reactionary and in opposition. No pipelines, you know, no to logging, no to dams, etc., so it's no wonder why so many of us are overcome by burnout. And I'm wondering how can rituals like the ones the Council of All Beings provide nurture us with both relief and joy in moving forward? Very good question, Ayana. And that they are an antidote to burnout. And how they do this, uh, I'm sure the answer is much larger than I've been able to understand so far. But one of the ways that they do it is that um, they allow us to celebrate by doing our honouring the pain for the world, by allowing ourselves to express our deepest anguish and grief about what we see going on, by bearing witness honestly to the terror that we feel at um, the kind of political and other events that are sweeping the world towards oblivion, it would seem, we give ourselves somehow permission then to celebrate authentically and wholeheartedly and with gusto. And so there are a lot of people who attempt to celebrate while in denial, but that's like, it's like being on quicksand. There's part of us that knows that underneath that celebration, there's this unexpressed fear, there's this unexpressed anguish. But once we've expressed the fear and the anguish, then we're free to celebrate without restraint. And it it is. It's like, wow, we have been 13.7 billion years. This universe has been evolving, four and a half billion years. I have been evolving on this beautiful planet. And here I am now, a human being, at the point when the universe has become conscious in us human beings 
has become conscious in a way that the universe can now turn around and look over its shoulder and gasp in awe and wonder at the trail that it has trod, that we have this incredible vantage point through our sciences, through astronomy, through cosmology, to see the enormous scope of the universe and to see, as Brian Swim said, this planet used to be nothing but molten lava and now it sings opera. So it's like, yes, we are part of a universe that not only is able to move from molten lava to singing opera, but obviously has a propensity or, dare I say, a desire to do so. And when we consider the incredible miracles that the study of evolution reveals to us, I mean, fish learning to walk the land, give me a break. You know, it's, a, it's you know, the actual story of how we come to be here is so much more astounding and unlikely than the most bizarre creation myth of an old man with a white beard, you know, pulling a rib out of, you know, and all the rest of it, that um, it's clear that given the threats that the world is facing at the moment, nothing short of a miracle will save us. But it's also clear that the path that we've travelled with so far is littered with miracles. It's just miracles every step of the way. So that's no guarantee that the miracle that we need, which I propose that miracle is uh, a profound and very, very fast change in consciousness so that the thrall of anthropocentrism slips away and we are permitted to, to find our ecological identity. Because, of course, once we, once we identify rather than merely know our ecological selves, once we understand that we are not the spider in the middle of the web but we're just one strand in that web, then we no longer feel like it's in our self-interest to be dismantling the web. It's, it's only because we have a kind of a, a counterfeit sense of self that we could be making that mistake. So that's the miracle that we need, in my opinion, is for us to just wake up to who we really are. protecting forest, holes were appearing in the sky and humanity threatens to choke on our own exhaust gases and other byproducts of progress, end quote. 
can you tell us about the dawning in which you realized that for every rainforest you successfully protected, hundreds were at the chopping block? How did you navigate the overwhelming understanding that the planet cannot be saved one issue at a time while still being able to dedicate yourself fully to the cause you are called to? And this is something I, I definitely struggle with. How I did it myself was kind of very personal, and I'm not sure whether it's um, generalized, but the kinds of things that I did was to realize that I couldn't kind of work this out. I couldn't figure it out. There was not like a mathematical thing where if I was very careful, I would come up with the answer. It was like more like just like some kind of a life decision needed to be made. And I would do things like, I was living in the forest and I would go to a part of the forest and I'd lie down on the ground and I'd bury myself in leaves so that I felt like I was inside the earth rather than on the earth, you know. And I'd meditate and I would remember, I would deliberately remember my evolutionary journey. I would remember that this little person that I am now is just the most recent moment in this vast, vast ancient thing that I was like this tiny, tiny leaf at the moment but I was connected still to the tree of life on which that leaf was growing and I could feel the twigs of my own personal ancestry my parents and I'd let my mind take me through to the realization that I was born out of a womb that was born out of a womb and it's just wombs and wombs and wombs going all the way back to the first womb and then what happened before that and so on and so I would attempt to sort of um, inhabit that and then from that space and feeling connected to the earth and feeling part of the earth, I would ask this question, what am I going to do? What is there for me to do? And then I brush myself off and whatever I felt like doing after that, that's what I do. I just follow my enthusiasm at that point. So that was my own uh, very idiosyncratic way of uh, of making those decisions because how can you decide are the whales more or less important than the rainforest you know well you can't there's no answer to that but i imagine that there are it's not like there's just one thing that everybody should be doing there are ten thousand things that need to be done and if we surrender to the larger whole of which we clearly are a part it's like i am like one cell in the body of humanity and humanity is like one cell in the body of the earth and when I was uh, an embryo the cell started dividing and one cell went on and started the liver and another cell went on to started the brain it's not like those cells had to decide what they were going to do it was just like they just relaxed and surrendered and they went to where they were supposed to be and it all worked out so I guess I'm working on the assumption that if we humans can let go of that illusion of separation, if we can let go of the anthropocentrism and surrender back to being merely one cell, you know, in the body of the earth, then our enthusiasm will lead us to the most appropriate thing that we can contribute to the healing of our world. And I guess one other thing I'll add to that is um, Thich Nhat Hanh, the um, Vietnamese Buddhist uh, monk uh, who coined 
the term engaged Buddhism, a new school of Buddhism, which doesn't retreat from the world but engages with the world as its spiritual practice. Uh, he was once asked by some students, um, they said, Sir, what is the most important thing that we can do for the healing of our world? And his answer stunned them. He said, the most important thing that we can do for the healing of our world is to hear inside ourselves the sounds of the earth crying. What an amazing thing to say. So this suggests first that, oh, you mean those cries that I hear inside myself might not be only my own personal biographical pain. You know, my mother didn't breastfeed me for long enough or whatever it was, you know, that the therapist talks about. That could be the earth that we hear crying. And the second thing is that this is the most important thing that we can do. And to my mind, the only reason that that could possibly be is because unless we're prepared to hear the sounds of the earth crying, we won't be able to act in a powerful way in her defence. And so, you know, the other thing that I did besides burying myself in leaves and surrendering and then following my enthusiasm, which has never led me astray, I may add, was to spend a lot of time in the deepest despair and not be afraid of that despair, especially doing that in company, in workshops, in circles with people, sharing these things with each other and then discovering that the empowerment that Joanna Macy promises when that is done correctly uh, invariably follows and then taking that power and throwing it at, uh, uh, you know, whatever the next issue or whatever the next campaign or whatever the next enthusiasm suggested. Mm. Yes, yes. Well, my last question for you, and it's a, it's a big one, but... You've stated more than once that you believe we are nearing the end of humanity. How have you worked through the despair to find empowerment in this trajectory? Have you in this lifetime already began to say goodbye? and, Or are there certain wisdoms that have aided in your acceptance? I, I don't remember ever saying that categorically there's no doubt in my mind that that is a strong strong possibility but i don't think i've ever had the sense that that's inevitable anyone who denies that's a possibility has got to be deluding themselves you know i think everyone has to accept the possibility that uh, humanity may be drawing close to you know to our moment in the sun but um for myself, uh, no, I haven't. I'm 72 years old and uh, I now have uh, a four-year-old son and I've got a lot of skin in the game and I propose that avoiding the extinction of humanity, that can't be done without protecting vast amounts of wild nature. So avoiding the extinction of humanity has to be the, the crucial question on everybody's mind and certainly the crucial question on my mind and it's the only game in town once you've seen this how on earth can you possibly sink back into <laughs> i don't know what smoking dope um you know becoming famous you know it's ridiculous and so uh, it's not over till it's over yes uh, it'd, it'd take a miracle uh, at this point to uh, uh, to save us but uh, Miracles are a dime a dozen, and uh, uh, and we don't know what the conditions are 
that might lead to that miracle. Maybe, you know, the hundredth monkey. Maybe there's already 99 monkeys out there and uh, wouldn't I feel like an idiot if I didn't show up? You know, I might be the last monkey that's needed in order to turn this thing around and, you know, to, to be part of that moment when humanity wakes up finally and uh, takes the turn in time before plunging over that cliff into oblivion. But just in case we aren't able to take that turn, let's say that we are the last generation of humans, all of the mistakes that we've been making bring this story of humans to a close. Well, first of all, nothing lives forever. Everything becomes extinct sooner or later. And so there's no doubt that human beings are going to become extinct. The only question is, when is it going to be? I vote for another 100 million years or dare I vote for 500 million years. You know, like I haven't had enough by any means, you know. I feel like we're just beginning to figure out how to enjoy ourselves. It would be ridiculous to uh, exit the stage at this point. If that is what's happening, then how am I to live? And, you know, what am I to do with my life? Uh, well, I could jump into the rat race, you know. No, I don't think so. I, you know, so... There's not that many choices. So the, the first thing that I'd like to do is to, I'd like to celebrate with immense gratitude for having been privileged to participate in this 13.7 billion year journey and to know that even if we become extinct, all of the different bits that make us up, you know, there's nowhere to go. You can't fall out of this net. We're just going to be recycled into other things as the dinosaurs are still around in the birds and, you know, and so on and so on. And, uh, by regularly doing the, the deep ecology work, I find that I can remain pretty upbeat nearly all of the time and to be able to throw myself at the issues to do whatever I can do to avoid that ultimate catastrophe. But what happens after that uh, is none of my business, really. Well, thank you, John, so much for going into these deep questions with us and thinking aloud together. It's been a lot of a lot of depth in this conversation and I really appreciate your time and thank you so much for all your work over all these years. Thanks a lot, Anna. Thank you for listening to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. The music you heard today was from Ila Bamba. The theme music is Silence Returns by Bo and Like a River from Kate Wolf. I'd like to thank our production team of soulmates, our producer and editor Andrew Storrs, our writer and research collaborator Francesca Glassbell, and our music coordinator Carter Lou McElroy. If you haven't rated us on iTunes, please take the time and do so. It really, really helps get these messages to a wider audience. Also, sign up for our newsletter at forthewild.world to stay attuned. All right, until next week. From this wild open sky on the country trails and wide Through the canyons dark and wide The sounds of people talking Words of blue and gray Smells of doors and windows Closed against the day 
cedar, drifting on the 